Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'm going to be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are my four fellow roundtablers, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. Well, this week, Leslie concludes her examination of action stories on an epic scale with the most epic, epic of them all, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. This 2003 conclusion to the Lord of the Rings trilogy was directed by Peter Jackson from a screenplay he wrote with Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens based, of course, on the epic novel of the same name by J.R.R. Tolkien. As usual, this is an adult conversation about a grown-up kind of film, and it's possible that you'll hear some adult words. There was a lot of movie in this movie, so I'm going to be very interested in the distillation skills that Leslie has been instrumental in helping us learn. Leslie, start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff, or perhaps payoffs, (laughs) to orient us to this story. Yeah, this is an epic story, not just in scope, but it is actually an action epic savior plot story where the hero faces a villain intent on social destruction. In the beginning hook, Sauron attacks Pippin through the Palantir in Edoras, revealing his plot to attack Minas Tirith. But when Denethor refuses to act to defend the city and Gandalf orders Pippin to light the beacon of Amundine, Theoden must decide whether Rohan will answer the call. Theoden declares that he will and prepares for the muster at Dunharrow while Aragorn takes the road to Dimholt to seek the army of the dead. So there are two major storylines going on and I want to let you know what's happening with Frodo and Sam while this is happening in the west of Middle-earth. So meanwhile, the ring takes its toll on Frodo as he and Sam make their way to Mordor with Gollum even though Sam reveals that Gollum intends to kill them. But when Sam offers to carry the ring for Frodo, he must decide whether to accept that help or not. And Frodo, whose mind has been poisoned by Gollum's suggestions that Sam wants the ring for himself, sends his friend away and follows Gollum up the secret stairway. Back in the West, the orcs of Mordor take Osgiliath, and the armies of Gondor and Rohan and the dead are able to defeat the armies to preserve Minas Tirith. But when they have no word from Frodo, Aragorn and the rest of the Fellowship must decide whether to wait or march on the Black Gate to buy time for Frodo and Sam. They decide to march, and Aragorn uses the Palantir to reveal to Sauron that he is Isildur's heir with the reforged blade that cut the ring from Sauron's hand. Meanwhile, Sam finds the Lemba spread that Gollum threw away and goes to save Frodo, who has been led to Shelob's lair and attacked by both the spider and Gollum. But when Sam finds Frodo and believes him dead while orcs approach, he must decide whether to continue the mission or not. He takes the ring and hides, but soon realizes that Frodo was not dead, and he follows Frodo into Kirith Ungol. 
Back in the West, for the ending payoff, the Orcs of Mordor move to the Black Gate to attack the armies of Gondor and Rohan. But when the mouth of Sauron shows Aragorn and Gandalf Frodo's mithril shirt and tells them that the Ringbearer is dead, they must decide whether to ignore the news and fight or lose all hope. Aragorn refuses to believe and rouses the forces to fight. They hold Sauron's attention long enough to buy time for the ring to be destroyed. And within Mordor, after returning the ring to Frodo, he and Sam head for Mount Doom, disguised as orcs. But when Frodo stands poised to destroy the ring in the fire of the volcano where it was originally forged, he must decide whether to part with the ring or not. The pull of the ring is too strong, but Gollum fights Frodo, bites the ring, and in his joy at being reunited with the precious, falls into the lava, which destroys the ring, defeating Sauron, and saving the people of Middle-earth. So that's the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff, but you'll find my global story grid full scap for the return of the king in the show notes. Wow. Okay. I was going to ask you, so how epic is it? But you just told us how epic it is. That's just, it's a huge story. So go on with the epicness of Return of the King, because it's really big. Right. Now, as you said, this film is an adaptation of the third book in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. The film largely mirrors the structure of the book, with the exception that the books split the stories of Frodo and Sam and the remaining members of the Fellowship from the beginning of the Two Towers until the ending payoff of The Return of the King. So why didn't I choose the first film in the trilogy? Well, one way to gain a better understanding of the global story you want to tell is to figure out not just where it begins, but where it ends. Knowing how the story ends lets you see what you need to set up in the beginning and middle to make the story work. It gives you a specific destination to work toward. Now this is true for any story, but especially true, I think, when it comes to epic stories like The Lord of the Rings, where you have lots of characters and locations, and it all needs to work together and support the main conflict. So just because epic fantasy readers are more patient than average doesn't mean you should waste their time. I've been thinking about this a lot because of this episode, for one, and because I finally watched Avengers Endgame, and there are so many threads that are paid off there. It's hard to imagine that any of it could have come together without meticulous foresight and intention. We know that J.K. Rowling wrote the last chapter of Deathly Hollows before she even started Philosopher's Stone, and it makes sense that for an epic story that's so rich and interwoven to nail down the architecture of the end so that you can work toward this. I see this as something I could really benefit from in my own writing. My ideas typically originate with the opening, you know, a beginning hook or that book one. So I really like this perspective of going to the end first. And I'm really glad that you decided to do this. It's really such a valuable lesson. Yes. And many writers, exactly like you're talking about, start with a premise. And those who are on the pantser side of the writing spectrum want to discover the story through their early drafts. And they might not be sure exactly where the story is going. So I totally understand this. But if you have a premise and you understand the message you want to send, you can zero in on your global genre. And once you know that, you'll know the core event for your story. 
And from there, you can imagine what it might look like, how the protagonist and the force of antagonism show up for a final test. So I want to focus on the story climax, the heroes at the mercy of the villain. The core event in an action story is the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. This is the moment when the global life value will be determined and when the basic human need reflected in the life value for the story is most at risk. So in an epic action story like we have here, the heroes and victims face death or damnation. Now, because of the risk and the shift, we experience the height of the core emotion for the story. In an epic action story, that emotion is excitement. So for the better part of three books or films, we've been waiting for this showdown between the Fellowship and Sauron and his allies and minions. This battle determines whether the people of Middle-earth will survive or die or worse. So whatever illusions of protection have been present before, they are gone now. Frodo's statement that he is naked in the dark with nothing between him and the wheel of fire is true for everyone, and that's a really important element in this scene. We should have, of course, established already that the villain is at the height of their power, and though the heroes have gained some hard-earned lessons, they are the worst for wear and at their most vulnerable. And because we have an ensemble cast of heroes, everyone who remains should be at the mercy of the villain in this scene, or as it shows up here, a sequence of scenes. Sauron is at the height of his power. Although he lost the battle for Minas Tirith, he still possesses an army of 10,000 orcs, which he can command effortlessly. There are still several Nazgul flying on their fell beasts, and they have the power to make people lose their minds in fear and forget to fight. So to set the stage for this obligatory moment, I suggest focusing on how you set up the power divide. Because we have an ensemble cast of heroes, the villain needs a wide range of tactics to create a large power divide that is large enough to threaten a group of characters that bring a wide range of skills and potential gifts to the problem. The heroes should be vulnerable to the villain, but the villain is immune to what the heroes bring before their gifts are expressed. So like I was saying, Sauron has a lot of allies and minions, including the armies of the orcs, the Nazgul, the corsairs, the oliphants. And this is all established before we get here to this moment. He's able to spy via the palantirs, through which he gains puppets, Saruman and Denethor, but also he can show them images that cause the members of the Fellowship to lose hope. Sauron is able to sense the ring when Frodo wears it and spot him, all from the comfort of Barad-dûr. He doesn't have to leave home to wipe out the armies of Middle-earth. On the other side, we have the heroes. Frodo is a hobbit, and in the Fellowship of the Ring, we get a long prologue on what this means. Hobbits are not known for bravery or adventures, but prefer a quiet life of food and fellowship. And while the other members of the Fellowship are veteran warriors, they haven't faced Sauron in his organized state. Gandalf is a powerful wizard, but he is only one, and Sauron possesses several Nazgul. The Fellowship are outnumbered, and as Aemir tells us, 
They cannot defeat Sauron through strength of arms. Their only hope is to outwit him. So to outwit the villain, the heroes must express their gifts, which usually involves a sacrifice of something important, especially something they really want. Now, the Lord of the Rings focuses at length on people's obsessions, when what they want gets in the way of what they need, and then it's taken to an extreme, as we see with Gollum. So this sets up the controlling idea or theme, or what this story is really about. The controlling idea is a basic expression, either prescriptive or cautionary, for the story. All the other elements should align with and demonstrate this, including structure, the characters, etc. So what I've boiled this huge story down to is that life prevails when heroes are willing to sacrifice what is most dear to them to outwit the villain bent on social destruction. That sounds terribly simplistic, but you can see how it works. If Sauron's obsession with power is what got everyone into this situation, they must give up their obsessions in order to be free of him. So Frodo has to give up the ring, which became an obsession for him, but he also has to give up the hope of returning to his life in the Shire. Sam has to hold on to that hope of returning home long enough to remind Frodo of their purpose, but then he too must give up that hope in the end or risk failure. Merry and Pippin must give up their innocence and playfulness. It's all been a game up until this point, but then they can't rely on the warriors or Gandalf to save them, so they have to grow up and express those gifts. Aragorn must give up his life of relative anonymity. He doesn't want to be king, but he must lead the people and provide hope that the work they do to distract Sauron gives Frodo and Sam time to destroy the ring. Now I have other examples in the show notes, but you can see here how what the heroes need to do to express their gifts to be able to outwit Sauron is let go of something they really, really care about. Now, I want to mention one other thing about this story, and that's the narrative device. And because it is a particularly good example, I think, of how this operates in a story. Now, this is a huge, sprawling tale. So where does it come from? Well, Frodo adds his book, also called The Lord of the Rings, to Bilbo's There and Back Again. He writes it as a historian rather than autobiographer. So he employs third-person, omniscient point of view. He writes after the adventures are over, so he has perspective and can use dramatic irony and tell the tale chronologically, though that would not be the way that he received it. And incidentally, the film handles this differently from the book. Frodo's purpose here in telling the story seems to be to record a comprehensive account of what happened. For whom is he writing this story? How does he know what happened in times and places where he wasn't present? Undoubtedly, his companions told him of their adventures, and Gandalf probably shared a great deal, and about the rest, he probably made educated guesses. Thank you, Leslie. My hat is off to you for finding and managing to articulate these structural elements so clearly. I've seen all the movies at least twice before. In fact, I own them on DVD. So I found that I 
had a really hard time separating myself from just the sheer hugeness of them and the long history that I have with the books and the movies. So I was completely overwhelmed by the process of teasing apart all of these threads and answering the main, you know, editor's six core questions. But you've made it clear, and you've made it clear without ruining the joy of the story for me. That's just really an amazing accomplishment. Thank you very much. Now, Jari's going to continue his look at various forms of love that he's been doing in all the stories we've studied this season. Jari, you've got some insights into how writers can use the comrades-in-arms form of love, esprit de corps. Yeah. As Anne mentioned, for this movie, I'm going to focus on how the fellowship builds an esprit de corps that's strong and believable. And the reason I'm going to focus on esprit de corps is because it's driven by love of family, friends, homeland, and most of all, of your fellow comrade in arms. Like Leslie did, I'll start from the end and work my way backwards by starting with two short monologues about the fellowship from Frodo and Gandalf. This one from Frodo... And thus it was, a fourth age of Middle-earth began, and the fellowship of the ring, though eternally bound by friendship and love, was ended. And then Gandalf says this. Farewell, my brave hobbits. My work is now finished. Here at last, on the shores of the sea, comes the end of our fellowship. I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are in evil. And shortly after Gandalf's speech, Frodo tells the other hobbits that he's off on another adventure. Frodo gives the book to Sam and says, finish the rest of the story. All great endeavors or quests must come to an end. We hope as readers or viewers that the ending of the quest will see our merry band of heroes go off and lead the kind of lives that they were actually defending. In terms of building esprit de corps, that's the first requirement, a common way of life to protect. Now, this common way of life does not mean the same life, since the Shire and the Elf world are clearly different. But what it does mean is that each comrade's way of life is threatened, and thus they must band together for the common good among them. This condition is necessary, but not sufficient to build the kind of love between comrades required to bond them together. Bonding between those on a common dangerous quest is built when trials and tribulations are overcome together. Before this trust is built, there's usually a great deal of posturing to establish who is the toughest, smartest, or bravest. This hazing is perfectly done between Legolas, the elfin prince, and Gimli, the dwarf warrior, who constantly keep track of their kills and kind of put each other down. This ritual of put-downs and testing is part of the trust building that warriors do to each other. It's an essential part of esprit de corps because it shows how far a warrior will go to win or to protect his comrade. Protecting the comrade is another essential element of building a strong and believable esprit de corps. The stakes of such protection have to be life and limb for your friend. This protection comes in many forms and is throughout the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. The best example of this is Sam and Frodo, since it's a great test of loyalty for Sam. Sam's loyalty is tested when Gollum deceives Frodo that Sam will steal the ring. Frodo sends Sam away, and even though Sam knows Gollum is going to 
try to kill them, he leaves because he's loyal to Frodo. Yet when he realizes the deception, he hurries back up the stairs to help him. It's at this point that Frodo sees the error in his judgment, but it's too late. He's already paralyzed by the shelob. When Sam saves Frodo, the bond is strengthened, and Sam's loyalty is to Frodo, even though their quest is to destroy the ring. And that's another part of building esprit de corps, duty to friends ahead of the quest. So the duty to friends, or more importantly, fighting for the person on your left or your right ahead of the greater goal, is what all militaries try to instill in their recruits. The reason being that in the heat of battle, all that matters is fighting for your brothers and sisters in the battle with you. This is pretty much done in every battle scene in Return of the King. Since as a viewer, we want to see the love between those in battle for their lives and their way of life. This esprit de corps building has been done throughout this entire trilogy by adhering to some of the following conventions. Comrades face a common threat to life and their way of life. Tests to prove bravery, strength, or smarts via hazing. Surviving trials and tribulations where respect is built. Protecting a comrade from peril at one's risk of life and limb. Loyalty tests. And protecting comrades in the heat of battle above the quest. So these conventions are similar to those in the war brotherhood content genre, where the goal, as Sean puts it, is the feeling larger than yourself when you're among simpatico people. That's the essence of building esprit de corps among a cast of characters that need to come together to fight for a common goal and their way of life. Thank you, Jari. I'm glad you talked about conventions because it's really easy to confuse them for scene types, at least when you're first starting to study this stuff. And making the distinction has been on my mind lately as I watch our movies and think about scene types. To me, the trick in uh, discovering and identifying a scene type is to start with, where have I seen this kind of thing before? But of course, that's also how we recognize conventions. The difference then is to step away from the meaning of the scene or beat, that is like to shift your focus from what this scene or beat is doing to carry the story forward and try to see its structure. It's like x-ray vision, look at its skeleton. How many characters are in it? In what type of surroundings? What sort of thing are they trying to accomplish? Not what specific thing, but what kind of thing? Do characters in other stories try to accomplish similar things in similar surroundings? So I just want to give two straightforward examples of uh, scene types from The Return of the King. The first is that famous scene right near the beginning where Smeagol has the argument with his alter ego, Gollum, looking into his reflection in the water. It seems like a unique scene. It's so fascinating. And I think we could call this the person argues with self scene type. It's easy to get lost here in the, this interesting motion capture, the CGI, and, you know, Andy Serkis's amazing acting. And then it's easy to be captivated by the threatening things that Gollum is, is revealing to us through this conversation that he has with himself. But when I thought about it, I realized I had read exactly the same scene type in something as far afield from epic action as possible in a Regency romance novel that I recently revisited by Georgette Heyer. The sensible heroine in this scene has a stern talk with her romantic self about how stupid it is to fall in love with the hero. She's sitting at a mirror, just like Gollum, and she even has two names for herself. Now, the other scene type I wanted to mention here is probably the most at home in action, war, and performance stories, and I call it the St. Crispin's Day speech after its prototype in Shakespeare's Henry V. And this is where the king, 
the president, the general, the captain, or the coach rouses the buy-in of the army, the crew, or the team with a thrilling speech. There are no fewer than four St. Crispin's Day speech scenes in this film, one each by Gandalf and Theoden and two by Aragorn. You will easily be able to spot them. I've made a list of some of the other scene types that I encountered in this film. There isn't time to go over them here, but I will add them to the show notes and you can look at them and have a ball. So Valerie, I see that you have decided to look at empathy through some small slices of this massive story rather than trying to tackle the whole thing, which I think is very smart. So what have you got for us? Well, just like you all have said already, this is a big story. And I often talk to writers who have these kinds of massive stories in their heads, and I usually recommend that they study series like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. Earlier this season, we saw examples of films that tried to pack too much story into a two-hour format. And as novelists, that's something we often do too, right? Many of us think we're writing one book when actually we're writing a series. Here, we see how much space and pages and screen time are needed to do these kinds of epic stories justice. So my first takeaway from the film this week is for writers to give a lot of thought about the scope of the story you want to tell. If this kind of epic fantasy is the story you're longing to tell, really take the time to study the masterworks. There are so many moving parts here, like it's mind boggling. You'll really save time and energy and frustration, taking the time to study them to understand how the great storytellers pulled it off. Also, understand that epic stories on the scale of The Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or Harry Potter take years and years to write. It took Tolkien 12 years to write The Lord of the Rings and another six to get published. J.K. Rowling spent 20 years on Harry Potter, and George R.R. Martin is currently at 23 years. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't write an epic fantasy if that's the story that's in your heart. By all means, go for it. I'm simply suggesting that you understand what you're getting yourself into. These masterworks and the people who wrote them are your mentors. And when you set out on this artist's journey, you're going to need them. Absolutely. Now, at three and a half hours, The Return of the King is the final part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so there's easily over 10 hours of story here to consider. Therefore, I thought the best approach for me to take here on the podcast is to look at a small, specific example of some key storytelling principles. As Anne said, the first thing I'm going to start with is empathy and dramatic irony, specifically as it relates to Gollum and the storyline with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. The Return of the King gives us insight into Gollum's background. He was once a hobbit who became corrupted by the ring. This is a terrific setup for and foreshadowing of Frodo's decision to keep the ring rather than throw it into the lava river at Mount Doom. But does it create empathy? That's the $60,000 question. (laughs) For me, that fact alone doesn't generate empathy. However, Catching glimpses of Smeagol trying to prevail against his shadow side certainly does. Unfortunately, he, poor Smeagol, he's just too far gone to really have any hope of redemption here. So he is firmly in the antagonist's role in this scenario that I'm looking at. It does give Gollum dimension, but it doesn't create full-blown empathy 
And that's a good thing because remember, Gollum is the villain here. Our empathy needs to stay with our hero, Frodo, and his trusty sidekick, Sam. That's who we need to be rooting for, not Gollum. Hey, Valerie, can I just jump in here for a quick sec? Yeah. I agree that neither side of Gollum is actually empathetic at this point. But, of course, I did feel real pity for him. And that gave me empathy for Frodo, who also pities him, even though that pity threatens to be Frodo's death. I feel like if I didn't feel that smidgen of pity towards Gollum or Smeagol myself, I'd have lost patience with Frodo. So I thought that was really nicely balanced in this story. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I mean by giving Gollum dimension. He's not simply a black hat, right? Or a mustache twirling evil guy. (laughs) There is something of goodness in him. And what's even better is that it helps drive the story forward. But recognizing that there's still a sliver of goodness doesn't automatically make him empathetic. These are the precision cuts of a master craftsman. Less experienced writers or filmmakers would use a hatchet to make big rough cuts, which results either in stereotypical characters or in confusion for the reader or audience. However, writers who really understand how the principles of storytelling work are able to use much more precise tools to give us a multidimensional antagonist with his own storyline without messing up the balance of good and evil in the global story. This is just one of many amazing storytelling principle examples in The Lord of the Rings. Okay, now if we look at The Return of the King as a solo film, okay, it isn't, but just for the sake of argument, let's pretend it is. Sam is actually more empathetic than Frodo. Now, he's not a very complex character, but boy, he's passionate. He's loyal to a fault, and in this part of the story, He's just doing more interesting stuff, frankly. We really get to see what he's made of here, and we're rooting for him every single step of the way. This is yet another example of the kind of precision storytelling I was just talking about. The empathy we have for Frodo has been building over the entire series, and it's not in any jeopardy of waning here. Tolkien and Jackson are able to turn the story's hero into a victim in this particular portion of the story without demoting him globally. They're able to promote the sidekick to hero status without confusing the audience as to what role Sam is actually fulfilling. This brings me to the narrative drive for this storyline. For the most part, it's dramatic irony. The audience knows exactly what Gollum is up to. We know his real plan for the hobbits, that he's tossed away the remaining elven bread, and that he's actually a villain and not a trusty guide. So when Frodo doesn't believe Sam, when he accuses him of eating the bread and sends him home, not only does empathy for Sam skyrocket, but the stakes rise and the tension increases. Remember, for dramatic irony to work, we have to have empathy for the protagonist, who in this moment is Sam. Over the course of the trilogy, we empathize with Frodo as the hero, but in this little narrow slice of the story that I'm looking at, Sam is in the hero role. Frodo has become a victim to the ring and to Gollum, and Gollum is the villain. All right, that truly is a whistle-stop tour of empathy and narrative drive in this one tiny part of the whole story. Needless to say, Tolkien and Jackson have ticked all the right boxes here, which is no surprise at all. The other thing I really wanted to look at, because I think The Lord of the Rings generally 
is a really good example of this, and that is the surprising but inevitable ending. We haven't talked a lot about that here on the podcast, but it's important. We've all heard Sean mention it, but you know, where did he come up with it and what does it mean? And is it really that important? Well, ultimately, the concept of a surprising yet inevitable ending comes from Aristotle's Poetics. If you've never read the Poetics, I really recommend that you do. It's the beginning of story theory, and it's as true today as it was when Aristotle wrote it 2,400 years ago. I'll put a link to a free download version in the show notes. So I'm working from a translation by Anthony Kenny, so the quotes I'm about to read will be slightly different from the ones in the free download version, but the meaning is the same. In section two, part nine, this is where he talks about the surprising yet inevitable ending. Aristotle says that the audience's emotional reaction to a story will, and this is a quote, occur above all when things come about unexpectedly, but at the same time consequentially. This will produce greater astonishment than if they came about spontaneously or by chance, for even chance events are found more astonishing when they seem to have happened for a purpose. Okay, quick aside here because, well, this is Aristotle and it's really important. (laughs) In this same section, he says that the poet's job, and by poet he means writer, is not relating what actually happened, but rather the kind of thing that would happen. That's an important point, especially for anyone who is writing a memoir. Now, Aristotle goes on to say that, quote, poetry, which we today refer to generally as literature or stories, utters universal truths. The universal truths concern what befits a person of a certain kind to say or do in accordance with the probability and necessity. In other words, he's saying, that specificity begets universality. And we've heard Sean talk about that before too. He's just not pulling the stuff out of a hat here. You can argue with it all you want, but if it's good enough for Aristotle, it's good enough for me. (laughs) All right. So back to the surprising yet inevitable ending. Again, I'm going to stick with the Frodo plot line here because in The Return of the King, the ending goes on for like an hour and the entire film is the ending to the global story. So the question I want to consider here is, why would Frodo leave the Shire again? He's just gone on this great adventure and faced near death and is finally back home in the safety of the Shire. He has returned to his ordinary world. Sam went on the same adventure and has no desire to ever leave the Shire again. Mary and Pippin had an adventure, and seem content to remain in their ordinary world as well. Isn't that where the hero's journey is supposed to end? Well, yeah, and actually it does. Frodo does return home, and the adventure with the ring is over. But the fact that he carried the burden of the ring has changed him in a way that is different from the others. We see that in the pub scene. Merry and Pippin are happy to watch the locals and have a beer. Sam wastes no time starting a relationship with Rosie. But Frodo has changed so dramatically that he no longer fits within the confines of the Shire. He does try. He stays for four years and he writes his story. But then he craves another adventure. This is surprising because the stories we've consumed have led us to believe that once the hero returns to the ordinary world, that's it. The end. 
Credits roll. If the story had ended in the pub, we would have been perfectly satisfied. In the short term, anyway. We're not expecting Frodo to want another adventure. Or for the storytellers to let us know that he's about to embark on something new. So the story could end here and, you know, we'd all just go on our way. However, because we see Frodo setting off again, the story lingers with us even longer than it would have. We're forced to think about it because it was unexpected. It's a little ball of chaos, that little fear, P-H-E-R-E, that Sean talks about, that we need to make sense of. When we do think about it, we realize that it's inevitable that Frodo sets out again because, one, he's been changed by the ring in a way that makes the Shire unsatisfactory. He wants more. Two, he's Bilbo's nephew. Adventure is in his blood, hobbit or not. And now that he has a taste for it, he wants and needs more. With Bilbo setting out on his final adventure, it makes perfect sense for Frodo to accompany him. And finally, number three, stories are about change. The protagonist or hero represents the reader or viewer. This is why empathy is so important. We don't have one adventure in our lives. We have many, and each one provides us with an opportunity to learn and grow. This is why Sam isn't the global hero. Although he has certainly changed, the shift in him isn't as profound. He's had his one great adventure and is now settling into life in the Shire. Very happily, thank you very much. However, life isn't about one adventure. Real life is a series of adventures. So while we may return home for a period of time, if we stay in that new ordinary world, we will stagnate. We'll stop learning and growing. And so, like Frodo, it's inevitable that we'll eventually set out on a new hero's journey. That is a fantastic analysis, Valerie. Thank you. I especially appreciated your thoughts on dramatic irony in this story because probably like a lot of writers, I tend to dismiss dramatic irony as something that belongs to quiet internal stories and literary fiction. And you've shown how powerful it could be in an action story with this enormous scale. So Kim, you've got a great view of the big meta why here. Tell us what you have come up with. Like Valerie, I had a hard time pinning down exactly what I wanted to talk about today. There's just so much goodness in the story. So I'm going to walk through a couple observations I had and just explore some concepts. As Leslie mentioned at the outset, the goal here is to examine the ending and payoffs of an epic story. And from there, we can better know how to begin and what setups need to come before. This made me think of the big meta why a.k.a. the controlling idea or theme. This is the meaning and the greater truth that an audience can take away at the end of every story. Now, writers rarely know their controlling idea before they begin writing. Rather, it is discovered. It's a pattern of meaning that is lifted from the events that they craft. But if we know our genre, we know the life values at stake and the human needs tank that they derive from, this is a strong step toward knowing your big meta why. Now, there's no need to obsess over it in the first draft phase, but at some point, you're going to want to lock into a controlling idea and theme, and then do a round of revisions with that at the forefront of your mind. In the world of computational explosiveness, which is certainly what stories are, your big meta why can help you make all kinds of decisions. And using it this way really sharpens your story and it helps you filter your characters, subplots, scenes, and even words according to what is and what is not the story. 
Sometimes you may even have too much good stuff that all feels on theme, and you need to decide what will best serve the story you want to tell. My friend describes it this way. She'll say, first we have to separate the wheat from the chaff, and then we have to separate the wheat from the wheat, and only the best fit wheat should be allowed to stay. And I just want to say a shout out to Leslie and Anne for answering my personal listener question on the Deep Impact episode. That perspective of building a case for my story and using supportive evidence is starting to take root in my brain, and it's it's really helping. So all of this leads me to a curious meta-why observation for Return of the King. I've seen this film countless times, but this is the first time I consciously noted that evil is defeated not so much by the Legion of Heroes, but by itself. Frodo withstood the One Ring long enough to get to Mount Doom, but he didn't actually overcome it and destroy it. He succumbed to the temptation just like Isildur did in the past. It's destroyed because Gollum and Frodo fight over it. Gollum bites off Frodo's finger and then falls to his death in the lava. His gleeful expression while he falls and the way he preserves his precious ring until the last possible seconds are shocking demonstrations for the hold that it really did have on him. So while the forces of good definitely fought hard and held evil at bay, in the end, it wasn't good that defeated evil. It was more like evil destroyed itself. Gollum destroyed the one ring and the one ring destroyed Sauron. Now, none of this would have been possible without the sacrifices of the forces of good. But it was an interesting observation. I didn't really know what to make of it, and I still don't entirely. But it may relate to what Leslie mentioned about the power divide. It's so vast that the only chance was for the heroes to outwit the villain. And I suppose there's something a bit poetic about Gollum being the one to finally destroy the ring, even if it is by accident. And this, too, feels surprising but inevitable. I noted a few other instances that align with the idea of evil defeats itself. For one, the orcs infighting, their literal backstabbing, which allows Sam and Frodo to escape with the ring into Mordor. And then Denethor, who is the steward of Gondor, believing his line has ended with the death of his son Faramir, who he had despicably ordered to retake the river from the orcs. He lights himself on fire on the funeral pyre, only to realize too late that Faramir is actually alive. He dies as a solo Burning Man festival off the top of Minas Tirith. Denethor seems to demonstrate a compact morality punitive arc. He begins at self-obsession and selfishness that falls to the negation of the negation, which leads to his just desserts. We do not feel sorry for him. Instead, we appreciate that justice was served. So perhaps that is the curious meta-why that I'm picking up on? Sauron himself experiences a punitive plot? I'm not sure. Maybe all villains who are defeated experience this arc, and it's a surprise to no one but me, but I was just struck by the fact that Frodo failed the test and the One Ring is destroyed on accident. I knew this before, of course, but I just didn't acknowledge it in this way, and I certainly hadn't asked myself what it means about the message of the story. One thing that is extremely clear about the story is how much we need each other, as Jari was saying. Frodo survives the entire journey because of the Fellowship, and most specifically Sam. That final moment inside Mount Doom when Frodo is dangling by his nine fingers, we can see in his eyes how tired he is, how much easier it would be to just let go. But Sam implores him. Don't you let go. And 
all this occurs before the One Ring is actually destroyed, so it still has a hold on Frodo. And in that sense, Frodo does pass the test when he chooses to live. This brings me to another idea I want to talk about, how much mentors and allies matter. In a morality story, the protagonists are at a level of sophistication that we hold them to a higher standard. They are accountable for their actions in a way that a status character is not, with the exception, of course, of the admiration protagonist. So while we feel a sense of justice at Denethor's death, Gollum, on the other hand, has our pity, as Anne pointed out. His arc is not morality punitive, but rather status pathetic. At the beginning of the film, we see Gollum's origin story. He's Smeagol, a halfling very similar to a hobbit. When he first lays eyes on the One Ring, he becomes instantly bewitched by it. He murders his cousin Deagle and takes possession of the ring, thus beginning his descent into life as Gollum. But he isn't being selfish as much as he is a victim of the ring. I hypothesize that Smeagol begins with a vulnerable disposition. I noticed that in his opening dialogue, he refers to himself in the third person once and then in the first person before taking possession of the ring. Give us that, Deagle, my love. And then Deagle says, why? Because it's my birthday and I wants it. Also, my love is what the precious would call Smeagol when they're having their conversations to one another. So before he has even touched the ring, he's already losing himself. I was talking about this with my husband and he pointed out Gollum has the addiction gene and it's like heroin is just sitting right there beside him. Now, Pippin has a similar experience with the all-seeing bowling ball, right, that he finds in the water outside Saruman's tower. He is instantly drawn to it and tempted. Gandalf is there to take it from him, but later that night, Pippin sneaks a look, allowing himself to be overtaken by Sauron. The only reason he survives is because he has mentors looking out for him. Of all the inquisitive hobbits Peregrine took, you are the worst. Hurry, hurry! Where are we going? Why did you look? Why do you always have to look? I don't know. I can't help it. You never can. I'm sorry, all right. Here, too, we see that Pippin's disposition puts him in a vulnerable position, able to be taken advantage of by more powerful forces. But unlike Smeagol, Pippin has a support system around him, able to step in and help him course correct. The presence of an adequate mentor is a key difference in a status pathetic versus a status sentimental story. And I was thinking that this whole story has a very status sentimental feel to it. The genre is often referred to in shorthand as weak protagonist succeeds against all odds. Now, in this case, the fellowship is weak compared to the might of their foe, and yet they succeed. Frodo makes it because he has Sam. They encourage each other through the whole journey. Merry and Pippin, Legolas and Gimli, even Gandalf needs Aragorn to help him in the face of hopelessness. There's so many great sets of buddies in this story. So, while all the observations about evil being its own undoing are still valid and a legit cautionary tale, perhaps the prescriptive meta-why here is to find your fellowship and hold tight to one another, because whatever dark forces you find yourself facing, this too shall pass. Oh, that's wonderful, Kim. Thank you. Leslie, I know you have some big final thoughts on this big, big movie, so please grace us with those. 
Okay, so like Anne, this story has been with me for a really long time. I first encountered it in fifth grade when my best friend recommended the story to me. Now, watching this again and analyzing it through various story grid lenses didn't diminish my love for the story, but it actually helped me to appreciate the time and hard work and dedication to the craft that it took to create the reading experience that the whole story offers. Now, plenty of epic fantasy stories have been inspired by Lord of the Rings, not the least of which is A Song of Ice and Fire. And if you want to explore a very fun rabbit hole, look at the parallels between these two stories. It'll blow your mind. The Lord of the Rings did for fantasy fiction what the murders in the Rue Morgue did for detective fiction. It established what we think of when we think about epic fantasy stories. But like many classics, it was a story of its time and not without its problems and cringeworthy elements. The Fellowship includes members of different races and classes from Middle Earth, but all of the heroes are white and from middle class or ruling class backgrounds. The only people of color in the story have sided with Sauron. And gender and sexuality differences aren't considered at all. So The Lord of the Rings is an excellent masterwork and definitely worthy of study. And of course, it's important to update and innovate to tell a story for our time. Now, I'm pleased to recommend The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. This is an action, epic, savior plot, fantasy story like The Lord of the Rings that better reflects the diversity of our world. So while focusing on the main conflict, the characters explore and question what it is to be different and which differences actually matter. And a master craft tip, Shannon does an excellent job of describing people's differences without resorting to cliched stereotypes. So I recommend that if you want to study The Lord of the Rings, you do so and study other stories too that have updated the classic. Thank you, Leslie, for covering that important aspect of this story, and the recommendation sounds great. We're going to go into a similar subject with our listener question of the week. It comes to us from Karen O'Leary. Let's have a listen. Hey, everyone. My name is Karen. Firstly, I wanted to say that I love listening to you guys. I learn something new from you guys with every episode. Uh, my question is about the gender divide convention for the love story genre, because uh, while I think it can be applied to older stories, I find it much more difficult to apply to more modern stories that blur gender lines more and more. For example, stories with men as stay-at-home dads or stories in which both people in the relationship may work full-time jobs. I also find it really difficult to apply the gender divide convention to love stories with same-sex couples or non-binary couples. And while I understood Sean's evaluation of Jack and Ennis in Brokeback Mountain as displaying feminine and masculine traits respectively, I still found myself cringing a bit at the implication that might have as labeling Jack the quote-unquote woman in the relationship. Um, so long story short, my question really is, do you believe that the gender divide convention could evolve into a more gender neutral convention that has to do with the complementary personality traits and behaviors of the lovers, of which gender specific differences may be only one part? I'm going to take this one because it came up in the masterwork experiment and has been much on my mind. Karen is referring here, of course, to the love story convention, uh, which Sean has defined using the term gender divide. 
He then usually has to backtrack on the language and explain that what he means is something like the lovers must represent masculine and feminine principles or yin and yang or Jungian archetypes of Mars and Venus or something like that. The problem is that in applying story grid analysis to love stories involving other than a man and a woman, or as Karen points out, in love stories involving a man and a woman who follow non-traditional roles, we start bending over backwards to ferret out supposed gender traits in them in order to prove that our love story meets the convention. I've never understood it myself. To my mind, you can't use the term gender divide and then pretend that it doesn't arise from a cultural assumption that all love story lovers will be one male person and one female person. When it comes to same-sex romances or non-binary relationships in love stories, or even love relationship stories involving, say, three people, there is such a thing, you're stuck trying to paste old binary labels onto characters that the labels don't fit. Now, on the other hand, from the perspective of a working love story, you do need the lovers to have different characteristics, sometimes opposite characteristics. The romantic tradition, that's capital R romantic tradition, has given us the notion that true love is about soulmates who have the possibility of completing each other. Therefore, they should each have traits and qualities lacking in the other person. Now, personally, I'd prefer to jettison Jungian notions of gender as archetypes in this analysis altogether and say simply that a love story must have lovers who are different enough from each other, both to generate some conflict on the way to true love and to discover certain unmet needs in each other as a means of making the true love believable and dynamic. I need to come up with a shorter name for that. My answer is by no means definitive, and it's certainly not StoryGrid official, so there's work to be done in this area, and we would welcome your further thoughts. Thank you, Karen, for a great question. If you have a question about action stories on an epic scale or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter, at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message just like Karen did. That wraps it up for this week. It was a great discussion. Thank you, Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into The Return of the King. We hope our discussion has given everyone a better grasp of how to incorporate epic elements and empathy and all the other things we talked about into your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you would like to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review, and please do tell your writer friends about us. We're taking a little vacation break from full-length episodes for the next three weeks, so we've lined up three practical bite-sized editions for you instead. Tune in for some solid how-to advice from Jari, Valerie, and Leslie on planning and executing your novel. We'll be back in full force on October 2nd, 2019, for Valerie's final look into stories that explore sanity and madness with 2010's Black Swan. Why not give it a look before we come back and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. 